1: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today we'll be talking, of course, about the New Hampshire primary. And Jane Mayer will report on the other side of the political divide, the secret network of billionaires organized by the Koch brothers. They think the Republican Party isn't right-wing enough. Coming up, Don Guttenplan on Bernie and Hillary in New Hampshire. But we start today with Rick Perlstein on the Republicans. Rick is the author of The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. It's a terrific book about America from 1973 to 1976. Before that, he published Nixonland: The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. It was a New York Times bestseller, picked as one of the best nonfiction books of the year by over a dozen publications. He's written for The Nation, The Village Voice, Rolling Stone, The New York Times, and The Washington Spectator, and also TheNewYorker.com. We reached him today at home in Chicago. Rick Perlstein, welcome back. A A week ago after Iowa, the Republican race seemed so clear. Trump was failing. Cruz would represent the hard right. Rubio would be the establishment candidate. Then in New Hampshire, it got all mixed up again. Trump, 35 Kasich, 16, Ted Cruz, 12, Jeb Bush, 11, Marco Rubio, 11. What do you make of the Republican results?
2: Yeah, I was there. I was indeed there. I saw them all. Uh, I have a uh, Make America Great Again camouflage stocking cap to prove it. Okay. The Trump thing is very important. And, you know, pundits, brilliant as ever, you know, who said he was just this you know, flash in the pan, are really proven wrong. He seems to be on a uh, very realistic path to the nomination. So I guess the strategic question for people who uh, think he's a disaster for the country and the party, which a lot of Republicans in Washington have to kind of figure out how to prop up a giant killer. And who's it going to be? I mean, we have uh, in second place... John Kasich, who I actually spent a lot of time with his campaign because I was very interested in the question of how this guy selling himself as this sensible, decent, accomplished, experienced uh, technocrat with a heart could get himself across uh, in Donald Trump's Republican Party. He got 16 percent, which, you know, really isn't a lot. What, like third place was like 12 percent, right? I mean, yeah. and that, in, in San Francisco, in uh, New Hampshire, that's only, you know you know, the low four figures of votes, right? It's very hard to imagine someone like Kasich uh, doing well in future states. He's not really a South Carolina guy. You know, he's certainly not a Western libertarian of the Nevada uh, ilk, but he's who they have to work with now. Rubio, of course, famously crashed and burned. And let me just tell you, seeing him and listening to him Once the kind of uh, bloom is off the rose and with a kind of ear untutored by the hype, he really does sound like a 12-year-old. I'm very callow. (laughs) Really uh, cannot get out a paragraph without repeating these robotic cliches. It's not just a pundit meme. I mean, what people didn't talk about much about this ridiculous gaffe in the debate of him repeating robotically this phrase about, uh, you know, Obama really uh, wants to transform America. It's not just that he repeated it as a non sequitur. It's just a really dumb, stupid argument. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, there's Rubio. I, I really think um, I, I went to a Rubio rally uh, that had fewer people than a Kasich Rally that was at 9 p.m. on election eve outside in the snow. Um, So, I I mean, really, I think Rubio uh, has gone the way of Harold Stassen. And then there's Chris Christie, really kind of reminds me of uh, sort of the mafia assassin. Uh, He took care of Rubio in that debate with Dispatch. He did. Uh, But, you know, you don't really nominate Luca Brasi, you know, (laughs) so, you know, kind of Christy swims with the fishes, you know, so who are we uh, left with? There's Cruz, who really didn't put a lot into New Hampshire. I saw him give a presentation, a town hall at a Mexican restaurant in a small town, and I was like, oh, Mexican restaurant, that's interesting, you know, maybe there'll be some Mexicans there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very naive of me of course this is a small town in new hampshire and it was kind of more like a chi-chi's than uh, <laughs> remember chi-chi's that mall mexican restaurant
1: oh yeah
2: so uh you know cruz uh, didn't do well in new hampshire but he he really didn't put a lot of effort there so um he might still be in contention as uh, the giant killer
1: let me ask you about Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush spent something like... Oh, I forgot Jeb. Isn't that funny? He spent something like $35 million on TV ads.
2: Did, yes, and, 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 and I think that like uh, the average New Hampshire resident, I think there was a study, received 35 million pieces of mail from him from Right to Rise, his super PAC.
1: And did anyone watch the TV ads or open the direct mail? Well, you can't
2: not watch the TV ads. I mean, it really is a, a saturation kind of thing out there.
1: Did it matter? Uh, um, Did the TV ads matter, do you think?
2: If they mattered, they uh, turned people off. You know, my impression of um, Jeb Bush was that everything he says sounds like an apology. What I kind of leverage from that impression is uh, it kind of redoubles my contempt for the the, the patheticness of political journalism in America that he could ever be... Framed as the person who was on a glide path to the coronation in the first place, I mean he's just really, really terrible as a politician
1: so what are the big g o p donors supposed to do now? New Hampshire was supposed to to winnow the field. This is kind of the nightmare scenario for the republican establishment,
2: yeah, wouldn't you like to be a fly in the wall at uh, you know the next you know whatever Westchester country club uh, gathering <laughs> What do they do, right? They don't throw good money after bad. They didn't get rich that way. Well, they probably got rich by inheriting it, but um, I, think right. I think they're in a pickle. No question about it.
1: Exit polls showed that that two-thirds of Republican voters in New Hampshire favor a ban right. on Muslims entering the country. That has right. got to be scary for Latinos uh, and and maybe even for uh, black. So Trump got only a third of the vote, but two thirds of Republicans agree with his bedrock principle on immigration.
2: You, you know what, Professor? I, I'm white, and it's scary for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, yeah, a, a friend of mine uh, on Twitter said he was seriously considering uh, leaving the country with his children uh, if uh, uh, Trump got the not just the presidency but the nomination. You know, it's 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 horrifying. I'm not sure that that was necessarily the issue they voted on, except for, you know, the, the way that kind of fears as they're uh, marketed by Republicans are fungible. The one is replaceable by the other. It just kind of becomes this big ball of scariness. I think the the thing that really moved the voters was they're building a factory in Mexico. This is Ford. And there's going to be 40,000 people working there. And I'm not going to let it happen We export the jobs, and they import drugs and criminals. You know, when I was at a – I forget which rally it was. These these things, reasonably enough, run together. I was kind of reading over the shoulder of a gentleman who was reading his small-town newspaper, and it was the obituary page. And the obituary page had three people, and one was like 28 One was like 32, and one was like 62. And the first word that came to my mind was heroin. Yeah, All the candidates addressed themselves to the heroin epidemic in uh, New Hampshire. And Donald Trump's answer to the heroin epidemic is, that's what happens when you have open borders. That's what happens when you let scary people in America. And he's going to eliminate it with extreme prejudice.
1: Uh, You know a lot about uh, Barry Goldwater and about Ronald Reagan, isn't Trump sort of following in their footsteps on the path they blaze that the Republican Party should be the party of white people?
2: Well, if you listen to um Ronald Reagan's rhetoric on immigration,
1: he really
2: did speak uh, in the most sappy, soppy, sentimental terms about people who want to come to america you know and, and when I say that, you know I think of that cheesy. You know Neil Diamond song from the eighties, "They're Coming to America." He uh, was very sentimental on that subject, and the fact that he signed this big amnesty bill, you know, in the middle of the nineteen eighties, I think it really wasn't that he had to. I think that he uh, really loved the idea of America as a light unto the nations, as a beacon. Certainly, he uh, had a very powerful sub-Rosa appeal to white people as white people. But there's something very non-Reagan, anti-Reagan, post-Reagan about Trump's negative affect when it comes to people who want to come to America and make their fortune.
1: Last question. How important is New Hampshire really for (laughs) Republican candidates? I'm sure you remember that Pat Buchanan won in 1996 in New Hampshire and then lost the nomination to Bob Dole, and in 2000, John McCain won a landslide victory in New Hampshire, and then lost the nomination to George W. Bush. Will New Hampshire be any different this year? Can I just say that New Hampshire
2: primary is ridiculous. Um, Thank you. uh, You know, I think there's been like 30, you know, major polls of the New Hampshire electorate and zero of South Carolina, which, of course, is much more indicative of the Republican Party, and you know, South Carolina probably has ten times more people and a more representative population in every way. In fact, it's so ridiculous that I found myself aggravated at being part of the problem. So, John Weiner, I'm, I'm actually here to say that when I come back in 2020, I'm not coming back as a reporter. I will be writing about it, but I uh, have news to break on your show. Please. It takes $1,000 or 100 signatures to run. I am going to file for the presidency. I am running for president (laughs) in 2020. Uh, And it is my goal to get 1,000 votes in New Hampshire. I'm not sure what my platform will be, but New Hampshire doesn't really mean much other than a full employment program for um, very well coiffed uh, TV presenters who really (laughs) – function like a pylons uh in these rallies you have to like trip over them all the time and i'm not gonna uh, i'm not gonna let that stand
1: rick perlstein future candidate for the presidency in new hampshire rick thanks for talking with us today thanks john Next up, Hillary and Bernie in New Hampshire. For that, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor-at-large of The Nation. His book, American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, was awarded the Sperber Prize for Biography. He also produced the acclaimed documentary film, Edward Said, The Last Interview. His latest book is about the magazine. It's called The Nation, A Biography. Don Guttenplan, welcome to the program. Great to be here, John. Well, in New Hampshire, Bernie's task was to win a decisive victory. He'd been way ahead in the polls uh, for months, and Hillary's task was to limit the damage to less than 10 points. Uh, It ended up a triumph for Bernie, roughly 60-40. The pundits say Bernie won because Vermont is next door to New Hampshire. Is that the way you see it?
0: No, I don't see it that way. And for the history on that, you could read my colleague John Nichols had an excellent piece in The Nation summarizing how little help uh, being from nearby has done to various candidates over the years. I can tell you as someone who lives part of the year in Vermont that uh, New Hampshire and Vermont are like chalk and cheese. They don't like us very much over there. We tend to not like them very much. We tend to see them as libertarian, radical right-wingers, and they probably see us as hippie socialists. Um, <laughs> it, it's true that they know, you know, the states know each other, but there was open warfare between Vermont and New Hampshire in the 18th century. And I would say, uh, as someone who spends quite a lot of the year there, that relations have only moderately improved since then. So, uh, I, First of all, so I, I think dismissing it because of geography is silly. It's also worth noting, though, that the, um, and maybe this is a slight counter argument, the last time a candidate won, a Democrat won by this decisive a margin in New Hampshire, it was John Kennedy. I mean, this is a historic margin. This was over 20%. Wow. Now, I had an interesting conversation yesterday with, I, I have forgotten his first name, so I apologize, but Mr. Paleologos from Suffolk University, who's their pollster, and they were predicting 7, 8, 9, 10 points, and they were predicting a smaller margin than all the other polls, and I said to him, how come your margin is smaller? And he said, well, we have a really tough screen. We only use Uh, you know, very likely certain voters, they call you up and they say, are you going to vote? And if you say, well, I might, or probably, or I think so, they they say, thank you, it's been nice talking to you. So what's significant about that to me is that it shows that uh, uh, the Sanders campaign delivered on its claim of being able to assemble and rouse a vast cohort of people who otherwise have been alienated and disenchanted with the political process.
1: Well, I wonder if Hillary is is going to get any better at this. Her people uh, have been saying for the last day or two that it's now time for them to, quote, retool the messaging. Do you think the messaging really was the problem with Hillary's campaign in New Hampshire?
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, you know. I think there are people who find Hillary very, very appealing, and, you know, some of those people are close friends of mine. Some of them are even members of my family. Um, For a certain kind of person who's a committed feminist and who, who felt in 2008 that she was thrilled for the chance to vote for a woman and then felt that she was being asked to step aside because of the historic claims of the Obama candidacy, you know, that those people are not stepping aside again, and they're determined, and I think they're entitled, frankly, to to vote for Hillary and be supportive and fervent for Hillary. Um, I think apart from that constituency, though, it's hard to see what case Hillary has made in terms of policy. I mean, every time Sanders comes up with a program, She says, "Well, yes, we want the same things. It's just that I can deliver and he can't." But the same things that she says she wants never seem to occur to her until Sanders has started putting them out there and getting a positive response for it. Yes,
1: you know, I noticed that uh, that Bernie got a lot more votes than Donald Trump. Bernie got what more than one hundred thirty thousand votes. Trump got one hundred thirty-eight
0: thousand votes. And and And, uh, what did Trump get? Trump didn't break a hundred thousand.
1: The Bernie campaign is now saying that they think they can win some of Trump's working-class white voters away from Trump uh, to Bernie's cause. Do you think that's possible?
0: Well, this is something that I started to see and point out in the nation when I went to Iowa. I mean, I traveled to places like Ottumwa. Which is a meatpacking town that's been extremely hard hit by globalization. Essentially, what happened is union jobs that paid $15 an hour in 1980 uh, were replaced. They were, as soon as NAFTA was signed, and remember it was Mr. Clinton who signed NAFTA, uh, those jobs started going south and also. The plant started recruiting foreign workers. They put up, literally put up, billboards at the Mexican border saying, "Come and work in Iowa. There are jobs in meatpacking." And in in part as a result of that, they cut wages. They speeded up the pace of the killing floor, um, which meant that there's an enormous churn in their workforce. And at the same time, um, they cut wages so that essentially workers working now at the same jobs, these are still unionized jobs, these are packing workers, the Packing Workers Union, they're getting only the wages that they would have been getting in 1982. And as as the vice president of the local in a said to me, you know, in 1982 you could buy a new truck for $10,000 and a loaf of bread cost $0.99. You know, that's not true anymore. So... Uh, he said to me that many of their members were at least looking at Trump, and um, I have found that I have found that that you get, particularly, um, if I can be crude about it, working class whites have every reason to be disenCHANTed with the way the economy has been run, and with this country's trade policies. And some of them resonate and respond to Trump's message, and others I think are uh, at least amenable to Sanders' appeal.
1: So the working-class whites who did not vote for Obama may now vote for Bernie. At least that's Bernie's strategy in the, in the coming uh, primaries. Hillary, meanwhile, I noticed spent Sunday not in New Hampshire, but in Flint, Michigan. This was two days before the vote she left the state. What do you make of that?
0: Well, I think Hillary's very, very smart, and I think she was right to go to Flint. I think for two reasons it's at least arguable that Bernie's victory in New Hampshire has raised the benchmark. So, you know, he beat her by 20 points. If she can beat him by 20 points in South Carolina, that will go a long way to um, answering her doubters. And, you know, to do that, she's going to have to really retain and turn out African-American voters in very large numbers, pretty much the same numbers and the same ratio that Obama did. And, you know... Uh, it hasn't escaped the notice of African-American voters, at least the ones I've spoken to in South Carolina, that Hillary is not actually African-American. Um, so she okay. has to, by going to Flint, she is basically saying, I care about what you care about. I stand with you. Uh, I am willing to speak out on these things. So that was a very smart move. And it's also a very smart move because, um, you know, South Carolina, for all its supposed importance, and I think it is important, as essentially the first African American primary, at least in the Democratic side. But you know the Democrats aren't going to carry South Carolina in November. Michigan is a state that's going to matter in the general election, and the Democrats have hopes and even needs to carry. So it's certainly a good idea to start spending some time in Michigan. I also think to give Hillary credit that she's right on the issues that that Flint is hugely important and a perfect illustration of what happens to government if we let republicans eviscerate it and i'm in a way slightly surprised only that sanders hasn't also uh, been more on board with that
1: Uh, last question why should we care about what happens with bernie and hillary in new hampshire it's a tiny state has very few democrats i think i checked something like 230,000 registered Democrats in the whole state. Los Angeles County has 5 million registered Democrats. Uh, New Hampshire is one of the three whitest states. Bill Maher says New Hampshire is for people who think Iowa is too black. Why should we care about New Hampshire at all?
0: Well, you care about New Hampshire for two reasons. One is sort of mythos or history, but I think that's actually a silly reason. The other reason... Uh, it's because New Hampshire shows what happens to a candidate's fortunes when people get a close look at him or her. Because that's the only way you can campaign in New Hampshire. You can't just put ads on TV and hold press conferences. You have to show up, you have to hang out with people, you have to answer their questions, and you have to be available and accessible. And, and it all happens, in fact, pretty quickly. The, the the election, although it seems to take forever, particularly compared to European elections, the election actually is a pretty quick process. But it means that New Hampshire is a chance to, to see in advance how people react to a candidate. And the news from New Hampshire on that front for Hillary Clinton is not good.
1: DD the nation dot com. Thank you, Don. John, always a pleasure. The book for this political season, in my humble opinion, is Jane Mayer's Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. It tells you a whole lot about how we got to this miserable point in our political history. Jane Mayer is a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of three best-selling books, including the indispensable book, The Dark Side, the inside story of how the war on terror turned into a war on American ideals. It's won many awards. It deserved every one of them. We reached her today in Washington, D.C. Jane Mayer, welcome.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, let's go back to January 20th, 2009. We were all watching Obama's inauguration on TV, our first black president taking office, a great moment for all of us. But meanwhile, in Indian Wells, California, At the Renaissance Esmeralda Resort and Spa, a secret meeting was underway, and you found out who called it. You found out what it was about. Tell us about that secret meeting.
3: Well, it was pretty much the opposite of the theme taking place in Washington, where Obama was trying to say that there is no red America, no blue America, just one United States of America, and we're going to all move forward together. And instead, what you had was... A small cabal of several hundred of the richest businessmen, mostly in the country, who were ultra-conservatives, who looked at the election of Obama as cataclysmic and were meeting to figure out what they could do to nullify the results of the election, basically. They discussed whether they should try to work with the new administration, and there was actually a big debate that took place there on whether they should behave sort of in the traditional manner of the um, opposition and try to work out compromises, or whether they should do something more radical, which was to obstruct the young new president in every possible way. And Overwhelmingly, the opinion of these financially spectacular opponents of Obama was obstruct, and they began to lay plans for how to do that.
1: Financially spectacular. Tell us a little more about that.
3: Well, uh, the person who really organized this event was Charles Koch, who, with his brother David Koch, is the owner of Coke Industries, the second largest private company in America. It does $115 billion of business a year, and each of the brothers is now worth something like $45 billion. And so they alone were spectacularly wealthy. But the, the, the brilliant thing that Charles Koch has done is, over the last few years, he has gathered around him a small group of equally conservative and equally wealthy, mostly white men, who are pooling their resources to try to influence the political outcome in America. And they meet in secret and they don't disclose their identities and they do take elaborate precautions to keep themselves. From being seen by the public, even at one point employing white noise machines to try to create static so nobody could eavesdrop from outside of their, the resort where they were meeting, and they do they they meet in secret and they have a, almost unfathomable resources financially.
1: You quote the invitation to one of the Koch brothers donor summits where Charles Koch asked, quote, "If not us, who? If not now, when?" That quote sounds familiar. Doesn't it come from Jesus?
3: <laughs> well, um, it's a it's a it's a quote that's used often to sort of suggest kind of moral imperative of doing something. And I think what's important is it gives you an insight into how Charles and David Koch see themselves as kind of salvation of the nation. They are on a mission here, and they believe that they are going to deliver America from the evils of government, basically. They are such fanatics about the free market, and it's not just that it's good for their bottom line, but it is always good for their bottom line.
1: What exactly is the relationship of the Koch brothers to the Republican uh, Party? You say they don't just support Republican candidates. You say they've created, quote, a private political machine that rivaled and threatened to subsume the Republican Party. Tell us more about that.
3: From about at least 1980 and even before the Kochs have been attacking the Republican party, but from the right. So for instance, in 1980, David Koch ran on uh, the libertarian ticket as vice president of the United States against Ronald Reagan, because the Koch brothers felt that Reagan was a sellout. He was too liberal. And so it gives you a sense of where they've been at this point. They they pretty much have defined the furthest right fringe, and they continue to do that, so that you've got the, the bizarre spectacle this year of of Charles Koch, who's become who's quite engaged in being more public finally after years of secrecy and he's been kind of flushed out and is trying to put a good face on what he's doing and he's he comes out and he says you know oh, i really don't have that much influence because i'm critical of the republican party and the democratic party well yes he is he's he he thinks the democrats are are hopeless and that the republican party is not right wing enough which is why this book is about the rise of the radical right these this is This is about the the far right and its attempt to take over the Republican Party and through that, the country.
1: One of the most important things, Jane Mayer, about your book, Dark Money, is this backstory, which is not just about candidates and elections. To me, maybe the worst thing the Koch brothers and their friends have done is to slow down action on climate change, especially by challenging the scientific consensus what do they care do they really want rising sea levels and melting ice caps
3: well what they do want is rising profits for coke industries i hate to say it because it sounds so cynical but it, it it's it, they are both graduates of MIT so surely they are acquainted with sophisticated science and yet They have been among the most important deniers of modern science of climate change. And they have funded, I think they put $25 million sort of secretly into groups that denied climate change between 2000. and 2008. And they've been part of of, of a larger group of of right-wing organizations that have put a half a billion dollars, according to one very recent, very credible study, into denying climate change and creating all kinds of confusion in this country among the public about what's real and what's not. And so is it that they want to see rising seas? Well, what they argue When you hear them, they very rarely really address this, but when they do address it, they will say, oh, you can't fight Mother Nature, or they'll even say, David Koch has even argued that climate change, if it is real, is going to make things better, and it's going to create more arable land for crops because there'll be less ice cap coverage. And they've funded scientists who will say that for them.
1: And another part of the backstory of the Koch brothers in your book, Dark Money, is the story of the Koch family and the Koch brothers' father. This part of your book made headlines. You show that the father made his fortune in part by building a massive oil refinery for Hitler. I was also interested in your report about the governess the father hired to raise the two oldest Koch brothers.
3: This was a, a hidden chapter of Coke Industries and of the Koch family. Yeah, it, it, it's first of all, it fits in with the Cokes that no one knew this because this family and this company has a history of extreme secrecy. So very little has been known by the American public about it. But um, it is true that that Adolf Hitler personally greenlighted in 1934 the building of a refinery that was designed. To, by Fred Koch, the father of Charles and David, and um, he was known for his sophisticated oil refineries that he could design. And this one became very important to the Nazi war effort because it was capable of refining high octane fuel that was useful for the air force, the Luftwaffe, for the Nazis. And it was the third largest refinery in in germany it was in hamburg and so that was in of itself interesting it was finished in 1935 which is getting you know into a pretty dicey time in our the history of the third reich but if that was not already strange enough the father also had hired a governess for his two eldest sons who were born by then who was herself a, a fervent Nazi and scared the daylights out of the little boys, according to the family. And she stayed with them until 1941, Hitler invaded France, at which point she was so excited that she wanted to go back to be with the Fuhrer to celebrate. So she left the family of her own volition
1: in 1940. It's an unbelievable story. <laughs> you really couldn't make it up, I don't think. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the 2016 election Uh, Who do the Koch brothers want to be our next president? I know it's not Donald Trump. He's one of the few billionaires who have not played ball with the Koch brothers.
3: And it's probably part of his appeal, I have to say, that that when you see interviews with the public, the people who've, who've supported Trump, they often say, well, at least he's not owned by someone else. He has his own fortune pretty much all of the other major candidates on the Republican side for the presidency have paid visits to the Kochs network, to this, this seminar that we talked about in the very beginning. It meets twice a year with the big donors in the Kochs in hopes of getting their oversized financial backing. So the Kochs could quite easily get behind, for instance, Ted Cruz, or marco rubio they've been they've been very positive about both of them if if trump is is falling behind the the Cokes are back in the driver's seat.
1: People say uh, there are right wing billionaires like the Koch brothers active in Republican party politics, but they say we also have left wing billionaires active in democratic party politics and on liberal issues. We have George Soros who funds democratic candidates we have Bill Gates and Warren Buffett who campaign for higher taxes on the wealthy. We have New York billionaire Michael Bloomberg who funds gun control campaigns. We have California billionaire Tom Steyer who funds candidates funding climate change. There's billionaires on both sides, so the cokes aren't aren't particularly uh, remarkable in this view. What's your response to that?
3: I think big money is a problem from any direction, whatever direction it's coming from. And really, I think that the the issue is whether concentrated wealth is beginning to overwhelm the idea of of political equality, one man, one vote. You don't want to see po- the policies of the country distorted by people who've got more money just because they have they can buy the influence. It's it, it's a corruption of the democracy. But that said, the money isn't Equivalent right now, and at least, especially not the dark money, which is what this book's about. The money from undisclosed donors in the last campaign, 80% of it was on the right, 20% of it was on the left. So it's 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 not exactly equal right now. And then the third thing I would say is that what's interesting about the Kochs and maybe worrisome about them is there's a complete fusion of their business interests with their political interests.
1: Uh, Last question. I read that the Koch brothers had tried to dig up dirt on you. So I googled Jane Mayer and dirt. I got 150 results, but, but no dirt, just stories about something called Vigilant Resources International. What is Vigilant Resources International?
3: Well, that is the company that did the professional dirt digging on me for uh, some operatives working for the Cokes. It was uh, a private eye kind of boiler room operation where they hired the former commissioner of police in New York City, whose name is Howard Safer and who runs Vigilant Resources International to see if he couldn't find something to discredit me. When when the Kochs were unhappy with a big piece I did in The New Yorker that kind of outed them and their role in politics, they couldn't find any errors in it. And so they were looking for other ways to take me down. And so they've hired a a private eye who went to work for a number of months and finally came up with some some stuff that he would, tried to disseminate to the press. They tried to plant some unfavorable stories, but nobody would run them because they weren't true. But it was an ugly operation. It, it it was kind of unusual in my experience.
1: One footnote to this whole story: How did the Koch brothers do financially during the Obama years? Did it did Obama ruin ruin their businesses?
3: Well, ironically, they've done fabulously, far more fabulously than most Americans, you can imagine. They started the Obama years with being worth $14 billion apiece. And at this point, as I mentioned earlier, they're each worth $45 billion apiece. And as you can see, it's been a pretty good return on their investment.
1: Have they thanked President Obama? <laughs> uh, not yet. <laughs> Jane Mayer, her terrific new book is Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Jane, thanks so much for this book, and thanks for talking with us today.
3: Thank you so much for doing this interview. I really appreciate it.
1: Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One.
2: As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on.